Now, I'm going to invite Shandis to come as well as we transition to our teaching time now. She's going to read for us our primary passage for the day, which is from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Good morning. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Amen. Thanks, Shandis. Good morning, friends. How are we doing? Good? It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not yet met. And I'm really excited to dive in for the next four weeks into a new book of the Bible for us as a church, the book of Ruth. Um, let me just kind of set up what we're doing with this. The book of Ruth is an Old Testament book, and it takes place. It's a very small, simple, kind of ordinary even, personal story that happens during the time period of the Judges. We've been studying the book of Judges since the beginning of the year and felt like it would be a good idea for two reasons to kind of take a little journey, a little mini-series, a sub-series, if you will, into Ruth. First of all, the book of Judges is a very uh, dark and rather pessimistic sort of a book. It recounts a period of time in, his, in the history of Israel where it seems like nobody uh, is following God. It seems like everyone is turning away. People are uh, rebelling against him, unfaithful to God. And so the book of Judges presents this very bleak picture. However, the book of Ruth uh, presents us a much more positive picture that behind the scenes, God is doing some really amazing and remarkable things for his people. Even though there's no king, God's preparing a king. And the other reason is it just helps us to know our Bibles. It helps us to know and to see the connections between the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. For you, maybe you didn't ever notice that, that it happens during the time period of Judges. And so I'm excited to do this for the next four weeks. Today, we're going to specifically be looking at the themes of friendship and faithfulness. Faithfulness and friendship is what we're going to be looking at today. And so before we dive in to these words, before we dive into this passage, let me just pray. And let's get our hearts before the Lord together. What do you say? God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to be present with us. God, for each and every single one of us, we don't simply just want to hear a good story. We don't want to just receive some information. But God, we want to encounter the living God. And God, for myself, I pray that you would guard my lips. I only want to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, I pray for each and every single one of us. Would you soften our hearts and transform us, shape us to to grow, to be more like Jesus. And God, I pray today as we look at this theme of, of friendship, God, I ask and pray that you would help us to rejoice in the fact that God, you have called us your friends, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And we thank you and we praise you. And we say all of this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. All right, I want to invite you to connect emotionally for just a minute, okay? So I want you to think back to when you first went to your first day of school. Can you guys remember that far back? Some of you, that's easier than others. But I want you to think back to your first day of school. Maybe you went to a new school. You walk in to the classroom or you walk into the cafeteria or the gymnasium, wherever it is, and you look around at all of these strangers and you think, who's going to be my friend? 
Who is going to like me? Who am I going to end up playing with? I remember for myself, uh, uh, a few times throughout my life, we either moved or I switched schools. So I got to have that joy and that privilege maybe about four times throughout my, my growing up years. And do you remember what it felt like, that, that kind of feeling of nervousness, uh, feeling of like you're guarded because you don't want to be hurt or rejected, but you're hopeful because you want somebody to make friends with you? Actually, the most recent time I can experience that was um, about six years ago when my family moved from Alaska here to Seattle, and I I moved so we could uh, participate in an internship with the previous church that we were a part of, and I remember walking into the room, and there's about a hundred people there to do this internship, and I just had all those feelings of nervousness and insecurity, and will they be my friend, and all of those things, uh, because I just left all my family, all my friends back in Alaska, and I literally, other than my, my wife and children, I didn't hardly know anybody. Can you connect with that? Can you remember an experience like that where you've just longed to have a friend? Friendship is an interesting relationship, is it not? See, most all the other relationships we have in life, there's, there's some bond. There's some sort of reason why, why you're friends. So think of your family relationships. You don't get to choose your parents. You don't get to choose the family that you're born into. Or, or uh, you think of maybe work friends or something like that. You don't, you don't uh, necessarily get to choose your coworkers are going to be. But, but friendship is this relationship that's just based on commonality. You like each other or you like some common thing. C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, I'm going to lean heavily on C.S. Lewis for today. His book, The Four Loves, really amazing work. But C.S. Lewis says that friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, What? You too? I thought that no one but myself, and then you fill in the blank. It's, you, you, you get this opportunity to connect with someone and to commit to someone just based more on your choice than, than really anything else. But I would also submit to you that, that very often, because of our sinfulness, but in America also, maybe more specifically, actually in Seattle even more specifically, we are not particularly good at friendships. We're not particularly good at friendships. You guys have heard of this thing called the Seattle Freeze, where, where, where we kind of like to keep people at arm's length. Oh, we care about you. We just want to care about you from a distance, right? Uh, <laughs> being, in, being in the South recently, or traveling to other parts of the world, actually even traveling to Uganda uh, a few weeks ago. People like, you know, they like do things like where they make eye contact with each other and they wave to each other. It's crazy. And coming back here into Seattle, it's like they're trying to not even acknowledge that there's another human on the sidewalk, Right? We, we struggle because we, we know that we want relationships. We know that we're made for relationships, but we are fearful of those types of relationships. Actually, it's funny. We use the word community, don't we? I mean, in our church and in churches in general, we often talk about how we're created for community. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We're made for relationship. God is Trinity, one God, three persons. And so we're, we're, we're made to be in relationship. And we talk about community. We just did two minutes ago with that announcement of our, of our community groups. But, but really, community serves as a platform for us to develop friendships. Where we let someone into an area of our heart. We let someone into an area of our life where we, they can be there for us and we can be there for them at a much deeper level. I, um, I had a friend, I have a friend who's a professional counselor. She's a licensed mental health professional. And she's told me off the record, so obviously I'm going to say it now publicly to everybody, but she told me that 90% of her clients wouldn't need her services if they just had better friends. That's what she said. If my clients, most of my clients, if they just had better friends, they wouldn't need 
a therapist, a, a counselor to come meet with them all the time. We just need people in your life to walk through things, to walk through challenges, to know that you're loved, to know that there's someone who's there for you, not because they have to be like family or not because they're paid to be like a coworker, but just because they're committed to you as a friend. And here's the big idea of what we're going to see today. I'll set this up and then we're, we're going to dive into this story here. The big idea for today is this. In Christ, God has made us his friends. And I just invite you, especially those of you who've been Christians for a while, do not let the shocking and, and profound nature of what I just said escape you. In Christ, God calls us his friends. And because of that, he calls us to be friends to one another. It's a simple idea profound and very challenging. Now, context for Ruth. As I said, the the book of Ruth happens during the time period of the Judges, but it's written later than Judges. Best we can tell, it's written much later than Judges because it references King David. So we know that the book of Ruth was written after the reign of King David. And so it's there to show us kind of the family history of King David. The, the book of Judges, while we've been studying Judges, the book of Judges is very political, is it not? Kings and coalitions and rulers and battles. But the book of Ruth is very personal. Judges is big picture. Ruth is, is, is little picture. Uh, the, the, the book of Judges is full of disappointing characters. <laughs> One person after another does not live up to our hopes or our dreams or our expectations, whereas the book of Ruth is full of very faithful characters. In, in fact, I mean, Ruth herself is just a wonderful, faithful, smart woman of God. And Boaz is this like just awesome, awesome guy. So it shows us that even though during the time period of Judges, everyone's kind of doing what's right in their own eyes, there's at least one family who is, who is wanting to follow God. The book of Judges says there was no king in Israel. You guys remember that? We've, we've seen that time and time again in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But in the book of Ruth, we see that all the while, God was preparing a king. He's bringing a family together that's going to be the, the ancestors of the great King David. And what's also really interesting, I want you to know this about the book of Ruth. God is, is really not a character in the story. God doesn't really speak. The people speak about God, but he's not a, a major player. God is more behind the scenes. And it should be an encouragement to us that even in life, maybe when we're not seeing the um, explicit sort of miraculous work of God, very overt, very obvious, we can still know as the people of God that our God never takes a day off. And he's always faithful and he's always working behind the scenes, even sometimes when we can't see it. And so we can see that throughout the pages of the book of Ruth. So let's do this. Let's dive into the story, chapter one, verse one, and let's uh, draw out some things I believe that God wants to uh, have us see today. Verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, so there's our context, there was a famine in the land. Now, famine, we can read over those words, and, and for us in the West, where we have grocery stores and reserves and stockpile, we can, we can miss the severity of those words. But when a famine would hit the land in the ancient Near East, uh, this is very, very difficult. Famine, if you don't have access to food, if you can't get rain, if the, if the water won't fall and the crops won't grow, then you literally are facing starvation. One of the other things we can, we can see in this, though, is in the days when the judges ruled— is shorthand for in the days when nobody was following God. 
The author of Ruth is, is giving us a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a nod to, hey, by the way, just remember, this was a really bad time in the history of the people of Israel. In the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, when God made his covenant with his people, Israel, he said to them, if you will walk in my ways, if you'll be careful to observe my commandments, then I will bless you. I'm taking you to this land flowing with milk and honey, meaning there's going to be food and there's going to be provision. But then the Lord does give a warning. He says, I want you to be careful to follow my statutes and be careful to follow my laws because if you do not, then you will experience consequences. You will experience the consequences of that rejection of my rule and my love and my care for you. In the time of the judges, people were rejecting God left and right. And so we can see that there's now famine in the land as God being true to his word that he said that there would be consequences for unfaithfulness. So there's a lot happening just in that one verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem is an important city. Who was born in Bethlehem? Oh, good job. Jesus, you got the Sunday school answer right. You guys passed. Uh, I will have uh, gold stickers for you in the lobby afterwards. So Bethlehem, though, before it was known as the city where Jesus was born, the first readers of this would have said, oh, that's the city where King David was born. This is the city where kings come from. In the, in, the, in the city of Bethlehem in Judah, this man went to sojourn in the neighboring country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of this man was Elimelech. It means God is the king. And his name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. And I forgot what their names mean. (laughs) They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. That's the tribe that they're from. They're from the tribe of Ephraim. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they go to this neighboring country because they have food. They're starving to death. There's no food in Israel. We're going to go to this neighboring country. But Elimelech, verse 3, the husband of Naomi died. And she was left with her two sons. Okay, again, just feel the weight of that. Any woman with two sons whose husband dies, even in our modern era, is going to feel the pressure, going to feel the pain of that. Not only the pain of loss, but then the pain and the pressure of trying to raise two sons on her own. But how much more in the ancient Near Eastern world where women did not have the same type of, of rights or, or property rights or authority or, or, or um, ways to provide for themselves, she is now in a very vulnerable position. She's left with her two sons. These two sons... They did something that they shouldn't have done. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Now, let me, I'm going to belabor this point. It's a minor point, but it's worth mentioning. The reason why God prohibited the people of Israel from marrying women, particularly the, the men from marrying women from other nations or intermarrying, has nothing to do with race or ethnicity or skin color, it had everything to do with worship, okay? Because God knows that our hearts are fickle, and when his people would marry people, foreigners from other nations, time and time and time and time and time again, we see it played out in the pages of the scripture, that the hearts of the people of God were turned and they began worshiping false gods, we see the, the, the worst example of this was Solomon, King Solomon, who at one point says that was the wisest man who ever lived. Somehow he went from the wisest man who ever lived to marrying literally hundreds of foreign women, 
collecting for himself a harem. And by the end of his life, he's a shell of the man and the leader that he used to be. And he's completely unfaithful to the one true God. This is why we say if you're, if you're a, a non-married person, you're single, you're dating, you should not date someone who is not a Christian, who doesn't share your most foundational spiritual beliefs because one person or the other is going to have to move towards the other. And in my experience as a pastor and in hundreds and thousands of years of church history, uh, it does not often go well for those who want to be faithful to God to become romantically entangled with someone else. I belabor this point just because it's worth noting that in the history of the Christian church, some have handled this stuff, these verses, these types of passages, very poorly. Nothing to do with interracial marriage or anything like that. That is, that is not a problem at all because Jesus has a bride made up from people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Amen? So Jesus has an interracial wife, and uh, if you have a problem with that, you need to take it up with him. This has everything to do with worship and faithfulness and devotion to God. I will also say to you, though, even though these people did what ought not to be done, they broke the law of God, they should not have done this, our God is such a redemptive God that he's going to use this woman, Ruth, in an amazing way to be an ancestor, not only of the great King David, but of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How beautiful is our God, amen? All right, that was totally free of charge. All right, let's keep going. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So they were gone for 10 years. And then both Malon and Chilion died. So now the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. We're five verses into this book. We've already seen more heartbreak and tragedy than, than most of us will deal with in a lifetime. Amen? It's heartbreaking. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws, uh, daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Hey, the famine's ended. Israel's doing better. We, let's, let's go back to our homeland. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Hey, you have been gracious daughters-in-law. You were good wives to my sons. You've been kind to me. May the Lord be kind to you, but, but you need to go back home. Verse nine, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Hey, you, you need to go find some new husbands. You need to go back to your people. I'm going to go back to my, my hometown of Bethlehem. I hope that God treats you well. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Okay, look, at there's some loyalty there. There's some devotion. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do, do I have any sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to give birth to any more sons. I'm not going to be able to provide you husbands and families. <laughs> uh, if I should say I have hope, even if I should get a husband tonight and bear sons, are you going to wait until they're all grown up? It's kind of a funny thing, but I mean, the idea of that family commitment and obligation is big in that culture and in that society. Look, if I had boys tonight, you're going to wait till they're grown ups and then you're going to marry them? No, that's ridiculous. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Listen to what she says. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. If you read through the book of Judges or other places in the Old Testament, that phrase, that terminology is used when one king goes out to wage war against another king. So what Naomi is saying, listen, Ruth and Orpah, God has made me his enemy. And you would do a lot better to just get away from me and go find husbands elsewhere. Even if I had new sons, even if I could give you new husbands, God doesn't like me. And it's very bitter for, for your sake that you'd hang around with me. Go, go, go back home. They lifted up their voices and wept yet again. Now, it's all been they so far, but verse uh, 14, we see a change here. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. It's like basically a kiss goodbye. But Ruth, what's the word, Sound City? Clung. Clung to her. Here she's got an out. Naomi's made a very compelling case. She's got a a reason to go. She's got the the freedom, the permission to go. But there's something about her relationship with Naomi that made her cling to her. There's been something in this 10-year history of their relationship together where she says, no, I will not let you go. I will not turn away from you. I'm not going to let you just kind of go off into the sunset. I am going to cling to you. Ruth says, uh, or sorry, Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. She's gone back to her gods. Why don't you return after your sister-in-law? Just go back. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And then here she utters, maybe the most profound verse in this book, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. When God called his people, Israel, out from Egypt and he took them in the wilderness and he took them to Mount Sinai and he gave them his law and he made his covenant with them, what did God say to his people? He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. That is said over and over and over again. That is the language of the covenant between God and his people. Here we see Ruth being a Moabitess, a foreigner, being adopted in to the covenant people of God. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. We have one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of a conversion. This is a conversion. This is not just a, I really like you. I want to stick with you. This is, I am giving my life to the one true God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. She even takes an oath. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And I love this in verse 18, just the pragmatism. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. (laughs) It's like, I, okay, I cannot, I, I can't, I can't beat that. I can't top that. But there's a very important point to be seen here, and it's this. True conversion is decisive. True conversion to being a follower of God is decisive. We see here this moment where where Orpah says, okay, I'll take you up on your offer, and she leaves. But Ruth, something happens in her heart. Something happens in her heart, and I don't even know why it happens in her heart, because Naomi, as we're going to see in a minute, is not in a particularly good place. This isn't because of Naomi's great witnessing and evangelizing. This isn't because Naomi took her through the Romans road or anything like that. This is just because God simply showed himself to be good and faithful and wonderful. And God just straight up saved Ruth. He just straight up saved Ruth. And she is now adopted into the covenant people of God. And it's a decisive moment. 
There's a decisiveness of, I am going to leave behind my people, my land, my family. I'm leaving behind my gods, and I will now worship the one true God of Israel. In the New Testament, we use language like born again. <laughs> that idea of being born again. You're, you're, you're born. When you're a baby, there's a moment that you are not born, and then in a moment, you're born. And I know it's not like a moment. Like, I know labor takes a while, okay? Some of you moms are like, it did not take a moment. You're going to throw a bottle at me. It's not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of your experience, okay? I'm just simply saying there's a very decisive change of status. Not yet born, born. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is a moment in your life where you are not yet born again, and then you are born again. And, and I say this because my concern is that there are some of you who you want following Jesus to be like a tool that you've added to your tool belt to use in times of trouble. Some of you say, oh, I have a a meal plan that I follow so that I can eat healthy. I have a budget that I follow so I can have good financial planning. I I go to yoga and I I run so I can stay, you know, fit and healthy. And then I have this Jesus thing so I can have kind of like a good spiritual life. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means that you surrender everything that you have in your life and you trade it all. You push all your chips into the center of the table and you go all in with Jesus because he says that to follow him means dying to yourself, giving up everything you are. Listen, if if I was to ask you, are you a Christian? And you say something like, well, I'm trying. Then that shows that you have not understood the true nature of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We don't, you know, in in the words of the great theologian Yoda, do or do not. There is no try. You are either in with Jesus or you are not. True conversion is decisive. Here we have a picture of Ruth leaving behind everything and saying, I'm going all in with the God of Naomi the one true God of the Bible. I share that with you for for some of you because you're you're kind of trying to dabble in Jesus. And I simply want to say, Jesus doesn't want you to dabble in him. He wants all of you. And I promise you, whatever you leave behind, as costly as it may be, what God has for you is infinitely greater. Not just in this life, but in the life to come, in eternity. If, you, if, you've, if you're not sure that you've ever done that or prayed or said, God, I want you to have all of my life. I don't just want to dabble in you. Will you come talk to me or one of the other pastors or leaders after? Because I want to give you that opportunity. Jesus wants all of you. And today could be the day where you say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm done dabbling in Jesus. I'm, I'm pushing all my chips in the middle of the table. Like Ruth, I want to I follow God. I want, I want him to be my God and I want his people to be my people, which is a way scarier thing when you think about it. But we'll get into that here in a minute. True conversion is a decisive thing. Picking back up in verse 19. So the, the two of them, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, I love this description, the whole town was stirred because of them. A stir. It's like um, if any of you like you've had chickens or you've been to someone that has chickens and like you, you kind of walk out and the chickens all kind of and they kind of like start, you know, moving around. It's like the whole thing just kind of stir. There's a person in our hen house. What is happening here, right? I kind of get the picture that that's what's happening in the town. Small town. Bethlehem's not some great, huge cosmopolitan city. They remember Naomi. She's gone. Where's her husband? Where's her sons? Who is this foreign woman she brought back with her? The women said, is this Naomi? 
Since you've been gone for 10 years, you ever had that where you ran into somebody you haven't seen them in 10 years? Like, that, that, that looks like, is that, is that who I think it is? They've changed their hair. I don't, is that who it is? Maybe kind of that. But I also, this is my suspicion, that the years have probably not been kind to Naomi. Famine, death of husband, death of sons, traveling, surviving. She's probably not, you know, not looking so healthy, not looking so well. The women said, is this Naomi? Verse 20, she said to them, don't, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Wow. Makes you wonder, by the way, when when someone has, has given that place to that level of bitterness, makes you wonder what Ruth saw. Why? I mean, have you ever been around bitter people? You, if you're anything like me, you try not to be around exceedingly bitter people. It's very unpleasant. But God did something to Ruth. Not only did she want to stick with Naomi, but she wanted to worship Naomi's God. The God that Naomi says is now my enemy. The God that Naomi says has testified against me. I mean, she's basically saying God hates me and has ruined my life. It just shows you the sovereignty of God. And it's worth us pointing out When hard times come, you and I really need to watch out for bitterness. When hard times come, we really need to watch out for bitterness. I believe there are two ditches we can fall into when hard times come. The the one is to just not acknowledge it. Right? I call this the, uh, the Monty Python uh, approach where, you know, the member of the knight, he got his arms chopped off. Like, what? Merely a flesh wound. Like, right? Like, oh, yeah, so everything in my life fell apart. I'm, I'm doing fine, though. I'm, you know, hashtag blessed. I'm doing all right. You know, just those kind of goofy things that we can do. Listen, the Bible not only gives us permission, but even commands us at times. When hard times come, you need to weep. You need to grieve. You need to lament. You need to wail. In the Bible, they did things like rip their clothes and pour ashes on their head as a sign of mourning and weeping. You guys, we have got to, when hard times come, we've got to have full permission before the Lord and even before each other to really weep and to really lament and to really grieve. Far too often in the church, somebody's going through some hard thing and we want to show up with some pithy little saying or some little Bible verse kind of yanked out of context and instead we're robbing them of the opportunity to genuinely grieve. But as much as we need to avoid that ditch, we also need to avoid the ditch of giving place to bitterness. Bitterness is is getting stuck in that place. Bitterness is saying every other good thing I have in my life now is tainted and ruined because of this, this hardship I've had. Bitterness is entitlement. God, you owed me something different than what I have right now. God, you owed me a pain free life. Or God, you owed me less pain than I'm currently experiencing. You know what? If the Bible is true, and I believe it is, then we've all sinned and we've all rebelled against God. And God doesn't owe us anything other than judgment for our sinfulness. Anything good that we have in our life is a sheer gift of his grace. Amen? 
We, we sometimes, you know, get wrapped around the axle. Why do bad things happen to good people? First of all, there are no good people. There's Jesus and a bunch of sinners who need rescuing. But secondly, I would just re- reverse the question. Why do good things happen to us bad people? Why should God allow anything good to happen to us in our lives? It's all his grace. It's all his mercy. It's all his love. We fight that attitude of entitlement with joyfulness and gratefulness and thanksgiving. You look at the picture of of Job. When Job suffered, he ripped his clothes, he poured dust on his head, he mourned, he wept, he wailed. And when his friends came, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the book of Job says in this, he did no wrong. We fight against bitterness by rejoicing in the goodness that God has given to us. There, there's much more that could be said about this. Um, last year when we were preaching <clears throat> through the book of Hebrews, did a sermon much more at length on the subject of bitterness. If this is something that you struggle with or something that you're concerned with struggling, I would encourage you to go uh, find that on our website under the Hebrews sermon series, it's chapter 12, um, to explore that more in depth. But I'm just telling you, simply, bitterness is dangerous. You don't want to mess around with it. You, bitterness gets in and it, you're stuck there. It's, I, I, I'm joking, I'm speaking hyperbolically, but only a little bit. It's kind of like the, if you've ever known somebody who's been bitter, it's like a guy that, you know, gets a flat tire on his way to work and he pulls over and he's like muttering under his breath, stupid ex-wife, if she hadn't left me, I wouldn't be getting this flat tire right now. He's like, wow, dude, let it go, right? I, 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 it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not. When somebody has that bitterness and they're like, man, it, it defiles everything. Then we see in verse 22, after her little stand, no, just call me bitter. Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her. They returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I just find it remarkable that even with Naomi being this wrapped around the axle, being this just unpleasant, must be unpleasant to be around, Ruth stuck with her. Ruth did not leave her. Ruth did not abandon her. And I don't want to give away the end of the story, but... God is going to use Ruth in some profound ways to bring much healing and redemption to Naomi's life. God is going to use their friendship in profoundly redeeming ways. And it, and it just leads me to my, my, my third and last point to be explored, which is this. Friendship is one of God's greatest gifts. What a good gift and blessing is friendship. Amen? Let me just, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever had a good friend in your life? Okay, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? I mean, just think of them. Maybe, maybe you need to call them or text them or just tell them this week how much you appreciate them. I love that we can see from this story uh, just a few things about the idea of friendship. The first thing we can see about friendship is, is that friendship can come in many forms. It's a very multifaceted sort of gift, is it not? Friendship, this is a friendship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. I, that's remarkable because in the history of the world, if you wanted to use an example for a potentially dangerous and unpleasant relationship, what is the one relationship that people pick on more than any other? The mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. And some of you are just getting a little tense right now in bringing it up. I just love that there is a friendship here between these two women. And it, it's, it's, you can see that there's friendship there because there was another daughter-in-law, right? Orpa. Orpa loved Ruth. She kissed her. She was gracious. They, they had a good relationship, but Orpa left. Ruth stayed. 
We see in the Old Testament friends like, like David and Jonathan. They have, they have a peer-based relationship. They're both young men. They're both warriors. They're both involved in the royal family. And, they, and, and, and um, Jonathan puts his neck on the line many times for David. David actually says, Jonathan, your love for me is more pleasant than the love of women. Meaning that, that like, this friendship has been more of a life-giving source of joy to him than even his romantic relationships. Some people have tried to misconstrue that to say that David and Jonathan had a romantic relationship. I, I just simply say that's a flat misunderstanding of just the nature of friendship itself, the beauty of friendship. I'll say this in America, we, we, we've, we've um, put sexualization on almost every form of relationship you can think of. And that's a great... Uh, disservice because there, there's beauty in the romantic relationship as well, but to not appreciate friendship for what it is is to miss out on one of God's great blessings. Paul, in the New Testament, he talks about these partners in, in the gospel, in the book of Philippians. Like, they're, they're ministry partners. They're, they're working together. They're, they're preaching the gospel to the world. Lots of different ways that friendship comes. And I point that out to you because sometimes we can uh, fall into a trap of thinking that unless friendship comes in this one specific way or this one specific pattern, it's not a real or a genuine friendship. God, God may bring friends into your lives in all sorts of random ways. Please don't put limits on the friends that you could have in your life. True friendship, though, we got to remember, is costly. Real friendship is costly. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. A well-known proverb says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Real friendship is costly. If you are really a friend with someone, it means that you're going to end up giving of yourself. You're going to end up giving of your time. If you, if you never spend time with someone, can you truly say that you have a close friendship? No, no probably not. There, there may be affection there. There may be a past friendship, but if you really don't ever spend time with someone, you're currently, your friendship is not that close. It's going to cost you probably money. I mean, you're going to have to get in your car and drive to their house, or you're going to buy them a meal when the, their family is sick or has a baby, or you're going to uh, be inconvenienced in many ways because of this friendship. But it's not even just the, the possessions part, right? Think about the costliness of real friendship of being vulnerable. Being vulnerable opening up your heart, talking about things that are more vulnerable, talking about things that are more sensitive, opening up to someone. Is that costly? If, if someone, if, if two people are friends and all they ever do is watch movies and talk about sports, is that a real genuine friendship? Probably not. Unless the only thing that those people have in their lives is movies and sports, that's a different problem. <laughs> because you need to find, find some maybe deeper things. That can be a great bridge. That can be a you know, camaraderie or companionship, but that's not what real friendship, real friendship is, is vulnerability. Talking about those deeper things in life. Because of the costliness of friendship, friendship can also cause the deepest pain, can't it? In Psalm 55, the psalmist is writing about, you know, paraphrasing, he says, if an enemy had done this to me, I could bear it. I could take it, because that's what I would expect. If it was an adversary or enemy, but because you did this, it hurts all the worse. He says, my familiar friend. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but how many of you have known pain at the hands of a friend? Someone spoke ill of you or lied about you or betrayed your trust or hurt you in some way, shape, or form. Friendship can cause some of the deepest pain. 
And even still, with that risk, I would say the Bible would say that it's still worth it. Friendship is still worth it. And I'll quote again from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Four Loves, because it's just so well-written. I, I couldn't even top it myself. But, but listen to what C.S. Lewis says about what you risk by not making yourself vulnerable to friendship. C.S. Lewis says, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal, okay? Get an amen from any dog lovers here? Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Wow. That's what we risk when we turn down this idea of friendship. I've been hurt. I'm going to build up walls to protect my heart, but your heart becomes the kind of heart that just can't be hurt anymore. And that's not what God has for us, is it? You know, when I think about this idea of the, the pain of betrayal, friendship, the pain that can come there, think of Jesus. Think of Jesus and, and him knowing the pain of betrayal. Jesus was betrayed by a friend, was he not? Psalm 41.9, this is an Old Testament passage, but it's speaking prophetically, it's speaking future about Jesus. It says, even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel to me. Think about Jesus traveling with Judas. I mean, we, we think of Judas Iscariot. I mean, his name is, a, is basically a, you know, a, a curse word in our day because we know that Judas is a bad guy and he betrayed Jesus. But think about it. Jesus traveled with him for three years. They were on a, a, a ministry tour, as it were, for, for almost three years together. Judas was entrusted with the, the treasury, the, the finances of this ministry. Jesus is sitting with Judas at the table the night that he was betrayed. They shared the dish together. Jesus looked at Judas and said, friend, go do what you, what you came for. Judas went and got the authorities who'd been wanting to capture Jesus for a while anyways, took him in the dead of the night and identified Jesus, the right one. Hey, the guy you're going to arrest, here's how you'll know it's the one. I'm going to kiss him. A sign of affection and friendship. Judas used the very sign of close affection and friendship to betray Jesus. You ever been hurt by a friend? Jesus has. Jesus has. Oh, it's not only Judas. By the way, then all the rest of his friends abandoned him once he was arrested and put on trial and crucified. No, nobody was there. One friend, John, stayed. One out of 12 Why did Jesus do that? Why would Jesus make himself vulnerable like that? Why would Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, why would he become vulnerable like that? He did it to save us, friends. He did it to 
not only identify with us in our weakness, but to shed his blood on the cross so that we, who were estranged from God, could be made right with him. Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day to convert us, enemies of God, into friends. Isn't that amazing? I think that, um, I think that maybe we don't focus on the theme of friendship with God as often as we should. For myself, I find, I'll just confess, I find it easier to focus on themes of God's lordship. He's the king. We need to bow our knees to him. But the, but the fact that God sent Jesus to invite us into a relationship of friendship. Don't take my word for it. Look at John 15 with me. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night that he is betrayed. I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you. How, how has Jesus loved us? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What he's saying is you'll show, you'll show that you're my friends by, by following my ways. You'll show that you get this. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. I, I've shared with you, Jesus. I've made myself vulnerable. I've opened up to you. I've given you everything. You're not just my servants. You are now my friends. Look what it says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. <laughs> you know, going back to my analogy of, you know, walking into the classroom on that first day of school, we didn't go in and say, oh, that's the best kid in the class. I want to be friends with that one. We walked into the classroom alone, alienated, scared, hopeless, and the coolest kid in the classroom walked up to us and said, hey, will you come be my friend? Come sit with me at the lunch table. I like that because, because we need to remember it's not that we chose him. He chose us. That if you're a Christian, if you're part of the family of God, if you're in the church, you didn't get in on a technicality. God actually wants you and he likes you. Wow. If that doesn't humble you and just make you kind of think like, wow, why, why me, God? I, I don't know what will. I did not, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus makes us friends with God. Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Can you say that? I am a friend of God. Let's, let's practice that together. Ready? I am a friend of God. Wow, friend. I mean, such a, what can feel like such a casual term, right? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm hanging out with my friend. <laughs> Reading the Bible, you're praying. I'm hanging out with my friend. And lastly, well, close with this thought. Because of all of that, because of what God has done to redeem us, to make us friends, then Jesus calls us to be friends with one another. Did you catch that? Give you this commandment, to love one another. Now some of you say, oh, I was with you up until this point. Have you met some of Jesus' people? And the answer is yes. Yes, I have. And this is where it really gets challenging, isn't it? This can be very challenging to, to be a friend to others. We all want that 
the benefits of friendship, but it can be very hard to want to count the cost to be a friend to someone else. But I would say to you that God has put people in your life, specific people in your life for specific reasons to grow you in specific ways that he knows best that you need. Again, quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, in friendship, we think that we have chosen our peers. But in reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university or another, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. This C.S. Lewis kid is smart. He's got a bright future, I tell you what. This friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to us the beauties of others. God wants to do something in your life through the people in your life. As frightening as that may sound, as unpleasant or uncomfortable as that may sound, and by the way, I don't want to make it, I don't want to present an overly dour picture. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are are hardships. But man, when we see the goodness of God revealed in a beautiful friendship, like Myung said earlier, you won't want anything else. You won't ever want to go back. You won't ever want to go back to that coffin, that dark closet that C.S. Lewis talks about. Yes, it may be dangerous. Yes, it may be scary to make your heart vulnerable. But when you've tasted of the goodness of God in the sweetness and the joys of friendship, it's hard to ever go back from that. Do I get an amen from anybody in the church this morning? Man, I, I want that for you. I want that for us. I pray that in a city that kind of has a reputation in the United States of America as not being a particularly friendly city, I pray that you and I would shine like stars in the darkness of night. We would be known by our love for one another in our friendships. Do you want that, Sound City? That's what I want for us. That's what I want for myself. I know it's hard. And let me, the last thing I'll say, I know I'm a preacher. It doesn't mean a lot when I say that, but I mean this. Here's how, here's how, We're going to get there. I cannot stand before you today and say, you all are not good enough friends. You need to be better friends. So go out this week and try hard to be better friends. That's not going to work, is it? It's not going to last, will it? How are we going to be better friends? How are we going to sacrifice ourselves more to love others, to care for them more? How are we going to do it? By remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If God has taken us, who were at one time enemies of God and made us his friends, then we can learn how to love others in our lives and be committed to them and grow as faithful friends. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would, in our hearts right now, stir in us and show us where you want to grow us as friends. God, for some, they they have been hurt by friends and and this whole conversation is a subject of pain. And God, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit to do a, a healing work. God, for others, they they just feel very alone right now. I pray that, first of all, they would remember that you, Lord God, are our faithful friend, the one who never leaves us and never forsakes us. And God, I pray 
that you would help those that feel that sense of loneliness or longing, God, would you, would you bring the right friends into their lives and would you help them to um, just take advantage of those relationships and opportunities that you've already set in front of them? God, for others, you're bringing conviction that they need to learn how to be better friends. And I pray, God, that that conviction would do its work. They would grow in their faithfulness to you and to others, not seeking to only take, but to give as well. And for all of this, I pray that you would draw us closer to Jesus and friendship with him. In his name we pray, amen. I want to call us into a time of response now. We're going to respond in a, in a few different ways. We're going to respond through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And so I'll invite you to give with a, a joyful and a cheerful and a generous heart. If you're a guest, please know there's no obligation to give. But I would simply say to all of you, giving is one of those ways that we can fight against entitlement and bitterness. Amen? God, this is all yours. and I'm just giving back to you what you've given and entrusted to me. We welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of response as well. And while the volunteers are collecting the offering, let's read through some discussion questions, some things to think about and, and talk about and pray about this week in our community groups and homes. How is the ordinariness, that's a word that I think I made up, of the book of Ruth an encouragement to you in your life and Christian walk? What can we learn from this simple story? By the way, the book of Ruth, it's only four chapters and you could probably sit and read it in about a half an hour. I would encourage you uh, over the course of these next four weeks while we're reading Ruth to just read over it a few times. Get familiar with this story. Number two, where have you experienced the joys of true friendship? And where have you experienced pain at the hand of a friend? And I, I, I simply want to ask you to share honestly in your groups this week, but just be cautious ab- about gossip or, or ungracious speech. I just want to give you that, that attention there, right? Be honest, be truthful, but let's not seek to... Um, Speak ungraciously about someone. Number three, what does it mean to be a friend of God and how is this aspect of your relationship with God play out in your spiritual life? And number four, how does God want to grow you so that you can be a better friend to others? A couple things to pray about as well. Number one, give thanks to God for making us his friends through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's just amazing. We, need to, we, we never want to stop praising God for making us his friends, Amen. Number two, pray that God would grow our church in friendliness and in friendship. And number three, ask God for opportunities to be a friend to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. That's a dangerous prayer, by the way, but I invite you to pray it with sincerity of heart. God, would you give me those opportunities? Volunteers are going to begin passing out the elements for communion. Let's hold on to this together and we'll, we'll take it all in, in just a moment. But let me, let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. This is what the Apostle Paul writes, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, I want you to think of this. As we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, This is a meal of friendship that we have been invited into with Jesus. We get to sit and call him our friend. We get to sit and call God our friend. There's an opportunity to self-examine. Whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, before you partake, I just want to invite you to pray to ask God to search your heart? Is there anything in, in, in me that I need to repent of or to give to you? And then 
when you're ready, eat and drink and then stand to your feet with us and sing as Elizabeth and the team lead us in a time of just singing and rejoicing in the God who never leaves our side, the one who's always faithful no matter what we're going through in our lives. Amen? Let's do this. Let's pray together and then we'll sing and celebrate. God, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Thank you that in Christ Jesus, you call us friends. I pray now that as we sing and we celebrate the Lord's table, I ask and pray that you would draw us closer to you and you would draw us closer to one another, that we could experience the joys of friendship with God. Pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen.